Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He was the first running back in NFL history to rush for 1,000 yards in back-to-back seasons. Until 2011, he was the leading rusher in the history of the San Francisco 49ers and was, for a short period of time, the all-time leading rusher in NFL history. Yet, when you talk about the game's greatest running backs, his name is rarely mentioned. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of the game's all-time greats and one of the NFL's forgotten heroes, Joe Perry. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. October, the busiest month in sports. It's baseball's postseason. The NHL and NBA are just getting underway. And this is when the NFL really kicks it into high gear. And on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of the NFL's all-time greatest running backs, Joe Perry. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of you out there who have never heard of Perry. In fact, to rush for over 1,000 yards in a season when Perry played, the 1950s and the 1960s, that was an incredible accomplishment. And he was the first to do it in back-to-back years. And this was when the season was just 12 games long. Joining us in just a moment will be Lee Elder from the Professional Football Researchers Association. Lee is a knowledgeable football historian whose enthusiasm for the game is so evident when you speak with him, and you're going to hear that enthusiasm shortly. This is Lee's second visit to Sports Forgotten Heroes. He joined us back in 2017 for a look back at one of football's pioneers, the great Benny Friedman, on episode 12. For more about Sports Forgotten Heroes, follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook or check out SportsFH.com where you can read more about our guests. Check out stats and stories about the heroes we talk about, our schedule for upcoming podcasts. Send us comments. We'd love to hear from you. Suggest topics and so much more. Also, if you like these podcasts, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Five stars is always cool. And if you're feeling up to it, leave a review as well. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible. If you're on the run and you just can't get to that book you've always wanted to read, Audible is a great way to enjoy it. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, covering all sorts of topics, including sports. Give Audible a try. There's no risk. You get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook download that you get to keep. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh and pick a book. It's as easy as that. So, Joe Perry. 
He broke into professional football with the San Francisco 49ers in 1948 when they were a member of the old All-America Football Conference. Joe spurned a more lucrative offer from the NFL's Los Angeles Rams to play for the Niners. And we're going to get into that with Lee, along with so much more. Perry was lightning quick, big, and as tough a running back as there was. And he was just an all-around great athlete in track. He received offers to play baseball. And he was also a heck of a bowler. But football is where he made his mark. And here to talk more about Joe Perry's great football career is Lee Elder. Lee, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so happy you decided to come back on and talk about Joe Perry. Well, it feels good to come home and talk to you about uh, about the sport we both love. And and Joe Perry is a unique person. He's got a unique story, and it's going to be fun to dig into it. Okay, here we go. I love it. And, and you know, you got to start with a question like this. How can a guy who was the first running back in the history of the NFL to rush for over 1,000 yards in consecutive seasons not be in the conversation when the topic of great running backs is discussed? Well, you know, there's a two-word answer for that. And those two words are Jim Brown. <laughs> uh, Joe Perry has a unique story, and we're going to get into it, but uh, he became the all-time leading rusher in the history of the National Football League in 1960. But before he had retired by the end of the 63 season, game six of the 63 season, Jim Brown surpassed his career yardage total. And Jim Brown was unbelievable. He was every bit of that, you know, and uh, and you know just as I do that 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 is the measuring stick that everybody measures things against, and people forget about the guy that came before him, who was Joe Perry, and Joe and uh, Jim Brown had some similarities, uh, and their stories were interesting, if if not the same, they were at least interesting. So, but I think that the reason people forget about about uh, Joe Perry and everything that he did was because before he was even out of the game, Jim Brown was running past him. But, but, I think until just recently, well, relatively recently, when Frank Gore passed Joe as the all-time leading running back for the San Francisco 49ers, we still didn't hear a lot about Joe Perry. He was still the all-time leading rusher for the 49ers. And perhaps that's also because, well, he had a face, or we, we, we think of the great Niners of the 1980s. Well, that's true. And one other thing that, well, Joe has a couple things working against him in terms of his, his profile. The first two years of his career, he played in the All-American Football Conference right. and not the National Football League. Right. And so the league did not count those totals, that yardage, in his career because he didn't do it in the National Football League. When the AFL and the NFL merged in the 60s, because it was a complete merger, they pulled all the statistics from the American League and, and included in the National League. But because only three teams from the AAFC merged with the NFL, they didn't bring those statistics over. And mm-hmm. so Joe had two seasons, two pretty good seasons, uh, that didn't count. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy to think that you can pick and choose what stats count and what stats don't. And I think, and I and I actually had a, a question for a little bit later on, but I think that the AAFC, those stats should count. After all, he was still playing against some pretty good teams like the Cleveland Browns. You betcha. And some pretty darn good good players. If you don't want to count the Cleveland Browns, just dismiss them out of hand. I mean, Elroy Hirsch came from the Chicago Rockets of the AAFC, and, and he turned out pretty good when he went with the Rams. So there's a lot of great players in the AAFC that, that finished their careers in the NFL, and, and you know, we, we don't think about those years in the 40s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Hey, tell me a little bit about Joe Perry. What kind of running back was he? Was he a slasher? Did he bowl over opponents? Was it a combination? What kind of back was he? Paint a picture well, for us. It- let me let me put it to you this way. Uh, his first quarterback with the 49ers complained because by the time he turned around to give Joe the ball, Joe's already through the hole. <laughs> I read that. And he, when when a guy is that quick, you know, that, that forces everybody to get a little bit better. I'm going to change sports a little bit. When Magic Johnson joined the Lakers, he was such a great passer that everybody on the ball club had to get better. And I think that Joe was the same way with the people he played with. His linemen had to get out off the line quicker and get into their blocks. The quarterbacks had to turn around quicker and get him the football. He changed things. But you really have to take a look at the kind of an athlete he was, Warren, before we do too much of anything else, because he wasn't just a great football player. Uh, you know, his high school track and field statistics were pretty impressive. In those days, they did 200 yards instead of 200 meters. Mm-hmm. But he ran 200 yards in high school now in 21.9 seconds. He broad jumped uh, 23 feet, 5 inches. He high jumped 6'3". So he was a tremendous athlete. And in 1950, he'd already been playing professional football for two seasons. He got an invitation to try out for the Oakland Oaks of the old Pacific Coast Baseball League. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, he was a pretty good bowler. <laughs> so and he, he was a phenomenal athlete. And, and that's, that's just sort of part of the story. Um, when he was in the Navy, and we're going to get into his Navy years because it's a crucial part of his story. Sure. But when he was in the Navy, he was in the West Coast Relays, and the guy he was running against was Mel Patton, who was the fastest guy in the world at that time. Patton ran a 9.3, and Joe finished second with a 9.5 in the 100-yard dash. Wow. And that's in 1948. Uh, 9.5 is pretty darn good, buddy. Yeah, I think so. So I think... This next question I have for you might be a little rhetorical, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) Where did the nickname Jet come from? Just how fast was he? It came from his quarterback who uh, tried to hand him the ball, and he said, Joe, you're as fast as a Jet. (laughs) And, you know, that's when when a quarterback can't get you the football because you're going by him too fast. Sure. (laughs) you're probably doing something right, even if you're doing it wrong. Frankie Albert's a quarterback, and he described, I've got a quote, and that's the reason I I wanted to read this quote to you, because it's just phenomenal. I like bowling, and Joe Perry was a bowler, so this, this quote is fabulous. Frankie Albert said, quote, Perry is like a bowling ball fired from a howitzer. It whistles straight down the middle and sends pins flying in every direction. And then he described Hugh McElhenney. 
He said McElhenney is like a bowling ball thrown with body English. It slides crazily down the alley, curls around the pins, and scatters them gently. <laughs> End quote. So that, that, that describes the difference between the two running backs. But, I mean, you know, a, a bowling ball fired from a howitzer. So that's <laughs> – he was 6 feet and 200 pounds. And back then, and that, that was, was that big. pretty big. For that era, that was, that was very good size. So if you're a cornerback – and you've got this guy coming at you at world-class speed, and he weighs 200 pounds, uh, your day just got worse. Yeah, I bet. How was the game different back then, the 50s and the 60s, for running backs, as opposed to how the game is played today? Is there much of a difference? Well, there is. Uh, first of all, um, a running back has always been a position where you take a lot of contact, you take a lot of hits, and that's you just can't change that. That's the nature of the game. If you've got the ball, everyone wants to tackle you. So um, that part hasn't changed, and the uh, you know the wear the wear and tear on the body is just not going to go away. That's just the nature of the beast. But um, what has changed since then is that the game nowadays is run at a different pace, uh, and ball players in that time didn't step out of bounds very often. They stayed in bounds, and mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, you'll prolong your career intelligently by stepping outside instead of running into two guys and, and getting an extra half yard. You, typically, you'll you'll step off and and uh, and you know survive to run another day. Uh, and also, the equipment is quite a bit different, and mm-hmm. the helmets in particular. Now, the helmets that we have in the pro game today, and the high school level, and the college level, every level there is, they're different than they were in the old days. They had this old suspension. Pad, it wasn't even padding. It was just little suspension things that kept the surface of the helmet off your head. That's about all it was. And so they didn't run uh, leading with their head as often as running backs do today. The NFL is trying to change that. But those helmets that they're wearing today, they protect your head, and they I think they give you a false sense of security, and that's one of the reasons that, that uh, ball players get hurt so much. But uh, the padding was different. The game was different. There weren't any artificial surfaces in the 50s. Uh, and so you were running on ice and snow, and not in San Francisco so much, but pretty much everybody they played, you know, had a, had a wintertime situation, and they all played outdoors. So it, it was a different thing. When you're trying to carry a ball with frozen hands, that's a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Did the running backs play all four downs back then, or were there some specialized, like today, well, this guy's a third down back, or we're in a passing situation, or we're in a strictly, we're in a running situation, or did the running backs back then play all four downs? Well, play three downs, because on the fourth down, right, it doesn't work, it. you're punting. Right, right. But uh, in, in Joe Perry's case, the wear and tear was a little bit different, and we're going to talk about the million-dollar backfield. Yes, we are. But a lot of the carries that he might have had if he was the featured back, he didn't have because Hugh the King McElhenney had to get the football sometime. Mm-hmm. And John Henry Johnson, who was with the 49ers for three seasons, mm-hmm. he had to get the football sometime. And that reduced a little bit the wear and tear on uh, on Joe Perry. And let's let's remember, too, that today they play 16 games a season. In those days, they played 12. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. Sure. So his journey to the NFL took a slight detour. When he left college, there was a small bidding war for him. 
The NFL's Los Angeles Rams, they were interested in him, and in fact, they offered him a contract of $9,500 a year. But the Niners, who, as we said at that time, were a member of the All-America Football Conference, they also wanted Perry. And I think it was the team owner, Tony Morabito, offered, well, less than half of what the Rams offered at 4500 a year, and yet Perry decided to sign with the Niners. Why? Well, let's talk a little bit about Joe Perry's ascendance to the San Francisco 49ers. It's a fun story. Okay. It begins with him being born in Stevens, Arkansas, and his birth name was Fletcher Joseph Perry. And uh, when he was very young, the family moved to Los Angeles, and he went to high school in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then he played junior college football at Compton Community College. Yep. Scored 22 touchdowns in one season. Mm-hmm. And then ended up in the United States Navy. Right. So he's in the Navy playing on a team at the Alameda Naval Station, which is up in the Bay Area, as you know. And... uh his coach is an offensive tackle with the San Francisco 49ers named John Woodenberg, W-O-U-D-E-N-B-E-R-G. Mm-hmm. And Woodenberg went to the owner of the 49ers and said, listen, I've, I've got a pretty good running back here. You might want to take a look at him. And the owner was Tony Morbido, and, and you know, he's a football man. He understands uh, where some of these guys are, and you know, it's service ball. It's not the National Football League. It's not the AAFC, and he's a little skeptical. But he goes to see him anyway. Perry scores four touchdowns, <laughs> none of them shorter than fifty-five yards. Oh wow! And Morbido's impressed. He went back to see a second game. Perry touched the ball twice in the first six minutes. Both of them were touchdowns. Wow! And so Morbido decides he wants to sign him. Now you and you reminded us very correctly that uh, he got an offer much better from the Los Angeles Rams. But, you see, Morabito was in San Francisco, which is near where Alameda was, so he Joe would not have to move too far away, although he was familiar with Los Angeles having grown up there. But Morabito was a little bit more consistent man. The, the Rams were owned by Dan Reeves, who he fired coaches like ideal cards. You know, every once in a while, he'd just throw another one out. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the consistency that you see from a man like Morabito versus the inconsistency that the Rams had probably meant something to Joe. And the other thing was that Morabito was apparently just a, a, an easier guy to get along with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you have somebody that you believe in, then that's where you tend to go. And, and I believe that Joe decided that the money didn't mean much. I mean, he said that 14 universities offered him better deals than the 49ers did. But he decided to play pro football and and uh, and uh, chose the 49ers. And you'd have to say he made the right choice because uh, they sure treated him well. We'll get into this later. But they really, really treated him well at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And and Morbido was really a key to Joe's career, was he not? I mean, I thought that I read, or from what I understand, the two of them were pretty close. Yes, they were. And there's a wonderful story. The first game that Joe played for the 49ers in the AAFC. They're playing a team from Buffalo. And the Buffalo owner apparently was less enlightened about getting along with, uh, you know, with other races. And he was very angry with Morbido for signing an African-American football player. 
Mm-hmm. In the first minute of the game or so, Perry subs in for the other fullback, touches the ball, goes 60 yards, scores a touchdown, and apparently Morabito turned to the other uh, the other owner and said, do you have any other questions? <laughs> well, it's a fabulous answer to a really poor question. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the reason I did is because I want to win football games. And uh, I believe that the faith that Morabito had in Perry is what made Perry want to be there. When a, when someone has faith in you, you want to be with them. You want to you want to you know uh, work for them. And and I believe that that's what happened. I think that they they paid each other back, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, with the faith that one had in in, in another. So, like you said, um, as a child, he moved to Los Angeles. Grows up in Los Angeles. His idol went to UCLA, Jackie Robinson. And that's where Joe wanted to go as well. Only UCLA rejected him. So he did go to Compton Junior College and he scored 22 touchdowns in that one season. And UCLA comes a knocking. Joe declines and he enlists in the Navy instead. Do you know why he chose that path? Well, the best I can give you is a little bit of information picked from a lot of different areas. Joe, his stated desire when he came out of high school was to become an electrical engineer. And the best school in Los Angeles for electrical engineering in the late 40s and 50s was not UCLA, it was USC. The reason I know that is that my father was an electrical engineer, and he went to USC. (laughs) And that's what Dad told me, and he hadn't been wrong yet. But I I believe that that played a role in it. Uh, the idea that the uh, school that he may have wanted to go to was not interested in him. And so he picked the Navy instead. So so he goes into the Navy, plays for the Naval team, and then Morbido brings him over to the Niners. The Niners are in the AAFC. And in those two years that Joe played for the San Francisco 49ers. They went 12-2 and two and 9-3. and three. Ultimately, they weren't going to go anyplace after that because the Cleveland Browns were just so darn dominant. But how good were those Niners teams, and how good was Joe during those first two years? Well, in 1948, let me check, the, the 49ers went 12-2. and two. Finished second in the Western Conference right. in '49. They went nine and three, so they were pretty good football teams. Uh, but Joe was the guy on those clubs, and first of all, he was the only man in 1948 who returned a kickoff for a touchdown in the whole conference. Oh wow! No one else in the conference the whole season returned a kickoff for a touchdown. And what's funny is that's the only touchdown return he ever had on a kickoff. <laughs> So he, he did it as a rookie, said he'd done it, and then sort of checked it off his box, I guess. <laughs> there you go. But, Been there, done that. I mean, Yeah, but, you know, you look at his first year, he averaged 7.3 yards a carry. And in his second year, he averaged better than six, almost seven yards a carry. So in those two seasons, um, he's averaging close to eight yards a carry. So I don't care who you are. I don't care what league you're in. That's awfully good football. Mm-hmm. Because every two carries, that's a first down. You know, when he first came up, 48-49, there was still, 
or we were still in the height of a lot of racial tension. So, of course, when you're discussing a guy like Joe Perry, you also have to talk about the color line. And I think he might have been the first African-American to play for the San Francisco 49ers. And he met with racial abuse and discrimination throughout his career. Can you tell us anything about some of what he faced and how he overcame it? Well, we have to go back mentally, emotionally to the 50s and remember that, I mean, it just wasn't good. Um, the the races uh, just uh, just didn't treat African Americans, uh, you know, the whites didn't treat African Americans uh, as as equally as right. as you know as we try to do now, and and we need to get better still. But sure. sixty years ago it was a whole lot worse, and it was probably every bit as difficult for Joe Perry as it was for for Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. um, and you know it it just was. But in my mind, the hero of this part is another California community college running back with the unlikely name of Verl, V-E-R-L, Lily White. <laughs> now, Verl Lily White went to Englewood High School. He played junior college ball at Modesto. So he knew Joe Perry. And uh, he went to USC, graduated, and ended up signing with the 49ers. Now the 49ers have Joe Perry on their roster, but they do not have another African-American. So on road trips, they don't have a roommate. And Verl Lillywhite had no problem. He said, I'll room with Joe. Hmm. And so they were for four years that Lillywhite was on the ball club, he was Joe Perry's roommate. And Joe said, and this is so wonderful, he said in the 60s, you know, people make a big deal about Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. He said, what about me and Verl Lillywhite? 15 years ago, and he was absolutely correct, of course, because they had already done it. They just didn't play for the Bears. <laughs> right. So they weren't as well known, but uh, it's, it's absolutely true, and um, it's, it's a unique story that I think um, you don't see anymore today in terms of, you know, you have to match roommates up, but right. it, it was a little bit different in those days to try and match up roommates in that particular situation, and I think Viral Lillywhite needs to get credit um, for being the man who, uh, the man that he was, and and he didn't have a problem with it. Hmm, interesting, and and I guess his Niners teammates they pretty much got along with him. Did did they not? I mean, was there any racial animosity on the team? Uh, you talked about Frankie Alberts before. I believe Y.A. Tittle liked Joe Perry as well. Well, yeah, Tittle liked him because number one, he got open. And number two, if there wasn't anyone open, he can hand the ball to Joe and get five yards. Right. Uh, I, the, the teammates, the guys that played with him, uh, by and large, got along with him. And, and there is a reason for that, too. Joe Perry was a good guy. Mm-hmm. People liked him. I, I have a friend who was drafted by the 49ers and was a rookie in 1958. As a matter of fact, he was a running back. And uh, I just talked to him today. His name was Max Fields. He played his college ball at Whittier College uh, his senior year, Don Coriel was his coach. Hmm. And wow. he told me that, uh, that Joe Perry was just a, a good guy. Just He treated rookies real well. And in the 50s, you know, veterans didn't treat rookies like they liked them very much because the rookies are out there trying to get their job. And he didn't have 53-man rosters like you do today. He had a 33-man roster. Mm-hmm. But Joe Perry treated rookies 
uh, with respect, and he was not hard on them. He was nice to them, and and when you when you think about that, that just tells you the kind of guy that Joe was, and I think that that's one of the reasons his teammates got along. He was a good guy, and I think that uh, Tony Morbido probably had a lot to do with that also because I'm not sure how much he would have put up with people not uh, not treating Perry well because he decided he was going to, mm-hmm. and once the boss man decides he's going to pretty much everyone else has to sure sure especially a guy you know it shouldn't be this way but especially a guy who is going to help you win that's exactly correct you know uh leo derocher in baseball used to say i don't care if the guy's a martian if he can help me win he's on the ball club so yeah yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think that was, that was probably the same was true for tony morbido who were his contemporaries of the time, and how did sharing the backfield? I don't want to quite get to the million dollar back uh, uh, backfield yet, but how did sharing the backfield with the great Hugh McElhenney affect his career? I mean, that, that had to career. take yards. It, it it had to take yards away from Joe. It took yards away from him, and also took hits away. Mm-hmm. How did I they complement each other? Career. How did they complement yes. each other? Well. Um, McElhenney was, if you will, he was more of a punt returner in that he was, he was quick, he was elusive, he was tricky. Perry was more of a kickoff returner. He was fast, had tremendous straight-ahead speed and great power. And so they complemented each other in that, you know, you're, you're used to getting pounded by Joe Perry. All right, finally, he's, he's not going to get the ball this time. Oh, Lord, it's McElhenney. I can't, I can't even find him, let alone tackle him. So I, I believe that they complemented each other in a football sense in that they were so different it really set the defense back a little bit, but also they complemented each other by taking a little bit of the load off of each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the NFL absorbs a couple of teams from the AAFC, and one of those is the San Francisco 49ers. He plays his first two years, as we said, 48 and 49 with the Niners, 50, 51, 52 in the NFL with the Niners, 53 and 54 with the Niners, but 53 and 54 were huge. They were his two biggest seasons. He led the NFL in rushing with 1,018 yards in 1953 and 1,049 yards in 1954. Over that period of time, he also scored 18 rushing touchdowns. Tell us about his game at that time. How good was he, and how was he able to explode for that many yards in each of those seasons? Well, he had a little bit of, I don't want to call it help. I don't want to call it good fortune. I would rather say that he had a circumstance in the second year, in 1954, when McElhenney separated his shoulder in the sixth game of the season. And so a little bit more of the load shifted toward Perry. And so in addition to the extra yards, he also got extra carries. He, he carried for 173 times in uh, 1954 and 192 times in 1953. So he carried the ball more often those two seasons than any other seasons of his career. And that extra time with the football helped him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was also during this period, well... The football writers, everybody recognized who Joe Perry was, and he became the first black player 
to be named the UPI, that's the old United Press International Pro Player of the Year. The honors were many, and the backfield in which he played earned that moniker, the Million Dollar Backfield. Tell us how potent that backfield was. And tell us a little more about Hugh McElhenney and the newcomer who you mentioned earlier, John Henry Johnson. How they all worked together and, of course, the great Y.A. Tittle. Well, they really did work together. And the fun thing is, if you take a look at their numbers, just their numbers of carries, you can see how they sort of complemented each other. Uh, Joe Perry got the majority of the carries, but by no means did he get all of them. And so you've got McElhenney and you've got John Henry Johnson, who was, along with being a good ball carrier, is also a tremendous blocker, a, a tremendous blocking fullback. And the two of them helped Perry a great deal. But what's fun about this, do you know of the four men that you just mentioned, do you know which one of them is the only one to have won a National Football League championship? It was John Henry Johnson. He's the only say, one. I was going to guess Y.A. Tittle. No, I did not know nope, that. No, Y.A. Tittle never won one. He was in a lot of games, a lot of championship games, but he never won one. Wow. So uh, it's, it's fun to talk about those guys, and the one that you wouldn't think is the one who got a ring was John Henry Johnson. He did. So, I mean, that's, that's just the wonderful thing about the way that sports are. It's, it's, you never know. It's a funny thing how things work out. But the way that they work together was that they took the load off of each other. So regardless of who got the most carries in a given game, he's going to take a little bit of the number of hits away from the other two. And then you've got John Henry Johnson, who was a superior blocking fullback. And so uh, he's taking additional hits away from Perry as the fullback because on occasion he's in there to block. And so they it was a tremendous... Uh, set of circumstance for the three years that they were all together that they complemented each other with their different running styles. They complemented each other with, with the way that they blocked for each other, particularly John Henry Johnson blocking. And every once in a while, YA would take a little pressure off everybody and just throw the ball for a long distance. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a remarkable group of men together who were able to put a, a very disparate set of skills into one's position and really, really give defenses headaches. And also, I believe uh, they extended each other's careers. Now, how does a team like that not advance in the playoffs and win a championship? Tell us a little bit about the game back then, who the big teams were and and who the teams were that the Niners just couldn't get over, that prevented the Niners from getting over the hump and winning an NFL title. Well, it seems almost like it was somebody different every year. Uh, in 48 and 49, of course, it was the Cleveland Browns and the AAFC. And they, they did play the Browns, I believe, in a championship game uh, and just couldn't beat them. But, I mean, who else did? Uh, nobody sure, did nobody did. I think the Browns, in their last in, in, in three years in the AAFC, if they lost more than one game, maybe it was three, but I think they might have only lost one game. The big thing is they won four championships. Yeah. I don't care about the rest of it. How many championships you got? You got them all? Well, then you're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, every one. But, but, but then Joe goes to the uh, San Francisco 49ers, 
and their first year in the National Football League, they're in the Western Division. And who else is in the Western Division? Los Angeles Rams. The Rams were in two championship games in 50 and 51, and they split them. They beat, they lost to the Browns in 50, and then they beat the Browns in 51. So clearly uh, a great team there with the Rams are just down the road from there. Mm-hmm. In 52, uh, the 49ers go 7-5. and five. In 53, they tied for second. They went 9-3. and three. So they were second and third pretty much all the time that Joe was there. They did get into a playoff game against, who else, the Detroit Lions in 1957, and they got beaten that game. This was a, they ended up tied for the uh, Western Division Championship, and so they had to have a playoff to decide who was going to go and play in the championship game. And uh, the uh, Browns beat the Lions, and I've got a quote from Joe about that, and this will tell you what kind of a competitor he was. He said, man, I cried for a week after that, and I wasn't the only one. And then the Lions beat Cleveland 56-14 for the title. Don't you just know we could have creamed Cleveland, too? <laughs> That's the end of the quote. But I, it must have just really sat on him for a long time that he couldn't. He had a shot at a championship game, thought he could have won it, but it just didn't get into it. Uh, they led the Lions 27-7 to and finally lost 31-27 in that in that playoff game. So, uh, and that 57 season was a pretty difficult season overall too, mentally. I mean, first, you know, Joe had a good season on the field rushing for 758 yards, but that's the year I think that Tony Morabito also passed away. Yes. And as a matter of fact, he passed away during a ball game. And uh, the way that I heard the story was that somebody took a note down to the head coach and the note said, Tony is gone. That was all it said. And uh, the coach told the, the ball players, and, and they went out and finished the game and won it. Um, I believe that pretty much everybody on that ball club had, a, had, had the feeling that, that their owner was trying to look out for them, and they, they liked him. So they went out and won that game uh, thinking about him. And then, of course, the ball, ball club passed over to his brother, who... I think tried to uh, tried to be the same way. I believe that family was pretty much the same way uh, with all the players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We talked about it uh, early on um, that Joe had rushed for a total in the NFL of eight thousand three hundred and seventy eight yards, and until Jim Brown came along, he was the NFL's all time leading rusher. But if you include his 1,345 yards that he accumulated in the AAFC, that means he would have gained nearly 10,000 yards, 9,732 to be exact. So it's not like this guy didn't gain a lot of yards. But the ridiculous question is, and I'm going to ask it again, how good was he? And, And perhaps... Maybe you can think of a player in the NFL today who would come close to the kind of back that Joe Perry was um, to help us understand what kind of runner he was and just how good he was. Well, let's start with the first part of it. Um, Joe Perry was six feet tall, he weighed 200 pounds, and he ran the 109.5. So he was, for his day, big, strong, and very fast. So he was hard to bring down because the first guy usually didn't bring him down. 
he had a good offensive line. We know that because everybody who ran the ball for the 49ers averaged three or four yards a carry. So um, he had a lot of help from his teammates, and, and, and they liked blocking for him because he got yards. So uh, you have that. Um, why he didn't get more recognition at the time, part of it was, as we talked about, he was part of a, a, a three-headed snake that, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, shared the football a little bit. There was only one football, so uh, you couldn't give it to your featured back every time because he had to give it to the other two. And fairly said, McElhenney ended up in the Hall of Fame also, so he was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, if you really look at it, uh, that probably, while it extended his career, it probably kept his numbers down slightly. Um, you're right about uh, Jim Brown passing him. What's interesting is that Jim Brown passed him before Joe Perry was even out of the game. Yeah, Jim Brown passed him in the sixth season, uh, I'm sorry, the sixth game of 1963, and Perry was still playing in 1963. Right. So it 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 hurt his memory a little bit I think to have somebody pass him while he was still active. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, uh, as many games as he played, as many seasons as he played at the end of his career, he was not the guy he was at the beginning, but he did in 1963 average 4 yards a carry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh which is pretty darn good. In terms of somebody who's playing the game today that would remind us a little bit of Joe Perry. Um, you know, Perry was a pretty good pass receiver. Mm-hmm. He uh, caught the ball, not all the time, but he did pass the, catch the ball, uh, uh, you know, good enough to uh, get the ball thrown to him, and that's how you measure. They won't throw it to you if you can't catch it. So uh, if I was going to pick one guy that sort of reminds me a little bit of him that's in the game today. Uh, the guy that came to mind for me is a guy like a David Johnson. That's a good one. I sort of like Todd Gurley also at the Rams because he's pretty fast and can catch the ball. Uh, Todd has a little bit more shifty uh, personality when he runs with the football maybe than Joe did, but he's fast like Joe was. He's big like Joe was, and he can catch the ball. So he's And he's tough. Uh, he's very utilitarian. And he's tough. And he's tough. Oh, baby, overcame a bad knee injury as a rookie, and now he's one of the best backs in the league. So... I think that the toughness is the same type of thing that that Perry had. You know, Joe Perry was was not some weak man. He was a strong man. He had to be. He played for three different decades in the national, at least in professional football. In my book, that makes you a pretty strong man. Why did he choose to go the football route? What can you tell us about that? I believe he thought it was his best game. In those days, track and field didn't pay a whole lot, so he may, if he was thinking about professional athletics, track and field would not really be the thing you choose. And he was good at football, so he didn't have to pick track and field. We did talk about uh, the Oakland Oaks of the Pacific Coast League yep. offering him a contract, and he probably could have tried out for a baseball team. Um, I don't know that he would have made it, but uh, he probably he was at least good enough to be offered a, a, a contract. He also was a touring softball player. He was a pitcher on a team in 48 that toured the U.S. and Canada mm-hmm. during the off football season. Uh, so he was a tremendous athlete. But I think that he chose football because he felt that was his best sport. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to argue he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. What about his upbringing? Was his upbringing, did he have a good upbringing? Yeah, Best, uh, best that I can tell you, he did. And it's interesting when he went into the Hall of Fame. Uh, 
You know how long his uh, acceptance speech was? I do not. Four sentences. Really? Just four? And at Ray, the end Ray of it, Lewis what, this past year, I think, was four hours. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but since you did, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the thing about it is that at the end, because you were asking about his upbringing, at the end he said that his only regret is that the two people uh, were not there to accept the uh, induction with him. They were his mother and Tori Morbido. So uh, if if Tony Morbido was like a father to him, he and his mother were very close also because that's the person he was thinking about when he went into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, she didn't want him to play football. Mm-hmm. His first practice as a high school kid playing football, he broke his ankle. And, and then he had to walk home and tell his mother he broke his ankle practicing football. Mm. So... Uh, you know, if if you've been close to your mother and now you have to go home and not only tell her that you've been hurt, but you've been hurt doing something you weren't supposed to do, uh, you know how difficult a conversation that had to be for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, he was very close to his mother through uh, all of her life. You know, one of the things I find interesting, and you sort of said this earlier, is um, I guess he was re- really revered by his teammates. He was loved by the fans. And... He played into the 1960s. He's having this great this great career. In 53, he rushes for over 1,000 yards. In 54, he rushes for over 1,000 yards. And in 1955, they stage, the 49ers stage, a Joe Perry day. They stage a day to honor Joe Perry long before he retires. And that day... The Jet burned the Browns for 116 yards. What did his contemporaries say about him? I mean, that's some honor to be given a day long before you retire. Yeah, he wasn't just given a day. They furnished his house. They, uh, I've seen the list of things that were given to him by, uh, I believe that the 49ers organized it and then sponsors uh, gave gifts, but they furnished his entire house. That was, I mean, he, he made out very well. They, they took good care of him. But in terms of what his contemporaries thought of him and, and his, his teammates and his owners, they liked him. They, they thought he was a good man, and, and I've already told you uh, that he treated rookies well. So obviously he was the type of man who uh, was easy to get along with. And, um, I mean, my friend told me other stories that would take too long to tell, but the bottom line is that, that uh, Joe Perry got along with his teammates and his teammates got along with him. And those who played with him for a number of years, you know, saw him average four and five yards a carry mm-hmm. and saw him uh, score touchdowns and, and do things that uh, really supported them and helped them win. How do you not like a guy who helps you win and he's easy to get along with? Did, yeah. Did, did he have any one game that stands out more in his career than any other game? Wow, that's a good question. Well, I, I mean, we talked about uh, in his entire, you're talking about his NFL career, I guess, but I I don't know that there is one that, that stands out. I I think that um, uh, the 116-yard game that you were talking about mm-hmm. uh, was pretty special. But, you know, for me, the game that, that maybe stands out more than any other was not early in his career, but rather near the end of his career. Um, he had gone to Baltimore for two years, and he mm-hmm. came back to the 49ers. And the reason he came back to the 49ers was that 
the players in the National Football League had just instituted the pension plan for players, which did not give you credit for playing before 1959. It gave you nothing. So Perry had this long career, but none of it after 59 counted toward, before 59 counted for his pension. Oh. And he needed to play three games to earn enough games uh, to earn his pension. And the 49ers brought him back specifically to make sure that he got his pension. Well, not only did he play three games, he played nine. And he started his final game against the Packers. So here's this man who's played all these years, had all these carries, taken all these hits, and uh, he starts his final game against the Green Bay Packers. And to me, that stands out. And the reason it stands out is that it says to you what the franchise thought of him. It says to you how hard he kept playing, because in that year, that last year, he averaged four yards a carry. So, uh, you know, that stands out to me as evidence of his his career-long effectiveness mm-hmm. and also uh, the way that people thought of him. Uh, because, you know, the 49ers did not have to bring back a man with all those years mm-hmm. uh, just to get three games for him, but they did it because of what he meant to the franchise. And because they did that, he played nine games. They Originally, they weren't sure they were going to be able to get him in for three. Mm-hmm. But he played well enough in, in the training camp, and he played well enough I guess in the preseason that they put him on the roster, kept him on the roster, and played him in nine different games. Wow. You know, over the course of his career, he didn't get to play in the playoffs too much, and I just got to go back to 1957. How crushing a year was that? How disappointing was that that postseason? You know, they like you said, they go 8-4. and four. He leads the league with 758 yards, but they lose that tiebreaker game against the Lions after having led them. How crushing, how difficult was that? Well, to put it in context, Warren, let's remember that really there was only one postseason game in those days. Yeah, yeah. You had the Eastern Division, you had the Western Division, and the champions of those two divisions played for the league championship game, and then everybody went home. And uh, Joe and the 49ers tied uh, the Lions and so had to have a playoff and, and lost that playoff. So to get into the postseason, which didn't exist usually for teams that didn't win outright, it was very unusual. And by that time in his career, he'd been playing since 1948, had not won a championship. And I would imagine being a competitor the way he was, not winning a championship uh, was something he just did not want to have happen to him, and he. It must have been a, a horrendously bitter uh, defeat mm-hmm. to have that big lead going into the last half of the game and then get beat uh, in the only playoff game that you have for the whole season. It's not like you you have two or three playoff games and then you go to the Super Bowl. It's it's um, one shot and in, and they didn't get there, and that must have really really eaten at him. Uh, I haven't seen anything other than that quote about how it made him feel, but Mm -hmm. when you read that quote, you just, you see the tears going down his face. I don't know if during your research about Joe Perry, you read more about that game. I don't know if there's anything you could tell us about that game. What happened? How can they jump out to such a lead and then ultimately lose it? Well, Bobby Lane was playing for the Lions. Well, that says a lot. And Bobby Lane was, that's, 
that's about half of it right there. Bobby Lane was was just a tremendous winner. He he knew how to win games, and uh, he got them. And then they they went on and, and beat the Browns in the championship. So, uh, you know, they didn't lose to a bad team. They lost to a, the eventual NFL champions. And uh, that's that's the biggest thing is that the Lions had. I mean, the the 49ers had great football players too. I don't mean to denigrate them, but uh, Bobby Lane at times could put a great game together, and he put a great two quarters together at the end of that one and got him a win. It's crazy to think, but I believe the stat is since that 1957 championship game that the Lions won, I think they've only won one playoff game since then. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, they haven't won many. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like they didn't have great ball players. They had some great ball players. Absolutely. Uh, in, you know, in that period. But, yeah. Uh, doggone it. You know, they. Uh, they didn't win, but they sure uh, they sure won it that year. Yeah, the Niners obviously have won several since then. So not long after that game, Joe Perry was traded to the Baltimore Colts. Why? Alan Amishi was the fullback that everybody remembers, the great photograph of him crashing into the end zone to win the sudden death overtime game against the Giants. And he was uh, the horse. He was this tremendous fullback, and he got hurt and ended up not playing too much more for the Colts. His career was about over. And Weeb Eubank, who was the coach of the Colts, needed a fullback. And so they negotiated a deal with the 49ers, and they got the great Joe Perry. Mm -hmm. What's odd about that trade is that the Colts actually didn't give anything for Perry. They had a threshold that Perry had to reach. to He had to accomplish this many yards, this many carries, uh, this many plays. And he didn't reach any of them. And so there was nothing that triggered the Colts having to give the 49ers anything. So how did that so benefit it was the a, Niners at all? It didn't benefit San Francisco whatsoever. But um, Perry got to go to a contending team. He got to go to a team that uh, you know had a chance to win a world championship. And in a way, it, it, it could have benefited Joe. It didn't end up doing that. But it could have, and I, uh, you know, that's just the way it goes. Why did the Colts trade him back to the 49ers, or how did he get back to the 49ers? Well, they made the mistake of thinking Joe Perry was done. They went eight and six in '61. They went seven and seven in '62. They weren't going anywhere, and they made the mistake of thinking that Joe Perry was done. And remember, the roster was still pretty small in those days, mm -hmm. and they didn't have a lot of room. And the 49ers were happy to have him back, and, and I believe it gets back to them wanting to help him get his pension. Right. Uh, he needed three games, and uh, he got him. Now, that was a bad 49er team. They went 2-12 and 12 and finished seventh. Mm -hmm. That was a bad team. But on a bad team, he still averaged four yards a carry. And he was sort of like a mirror shell of what he used to be. How much did injuries and maybe even concussions affect his final years? His wife said after he died that she and he died of dementia. She believed that uh, he had uh, brain injuries from his time playing football. We've talked about the helmets already that they had in the 50s. And, and in the 60s, they hadn't got much better. So um, his wife felt that the hits that he took as a football player had something to do with it. And she also had a quote 
she said that uh, I don't have it exactly. It's not right in front of me. But she said, in, in when Joe was playing, if he got hit in the head and he came off woozy, they gave you smelling salts and sent you back in, which is true. Uh, they just wake you up and send you back in there mm-hmm. whether you had a concussion or what you had. And um, let's face it, that's we know now that that is not the right way to treat that. Uh, the league has all kinds of uh, processes that you go through now. If you even think that somebody's been um, knocked a little bit woozy, or as they say, or has a minor concussion, you have to treat them a specific way. There's a rule now, and they didn't have that rule then, mm-hmm. and they didn't even know what they were dealing with at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So um, how much did it play a role in his final years? Well, he, he did die of dementia, and uh, uh, so it, it must have played a role of some sort. Did I read that his brain was being donated um, for, for CTE study? I believe that's accurate, yes. Um, I believe he, his wife said, because I came across a quote about that, that she was donating uh, his brain because, for that reason, because she was thinking about protecting the next generation of football players, or maybe just the next generation of people. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the study that uh, the NFL uh, is, is commissioned um, doesn't just help football players, because uh, I don't know if you saw a report on national news the other day, but they're using some of that information also for military personnel who have experienced uh, some of the large explosions that come from the improvised yeah. explosive devices that are so damaging to our, our military men and women who are over there fighting to give us the freedom to talk about football whenever we wanted to. And um, so they are also benefiting from uh, some of the information that's being generated by the study of the NFL. Huh. And uh, I mean, I guess if there's anything that, that good that can come out of it, it's it's the benefit that this study is going to give, perhaps, to the men and women in our military uniforms. Mm-hmm. What was his life like after his playing days were over? He was a salesman, but, you know, he loved bowling. And uh, he traveled uh, some in his business uh, in the years after. He also uh, was involved with the 49ers as a coach and as a scout. But, he, you know, in those days, uh, football players and football coaches had off-season jobs. And uh, he, he did some, some, as I understand it, did some selling. And uh, he also loved to bowl, so he took his bowling ball everywhere he went and uh, apparently was uh, a pretty good bowler. I guess he, he was up over 200 many times. Um, I've been up over 200 several times, but it was always watching somebody else do it. <laughs> you know, it's crazy to think just how good he was and how overlooked he is. When you think of the great running backs in football history, of course, Jim Brown, Walter Payton, Earl Campbell, Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith. I think those are some of the guys that come to mind first. But I, I just really believe that you would be hard-pressed to find anyone to say Joe Perry, even in San Francisco. And this is a guy, as we said earlier, who was the Niners' all-time leading rusher until Frank Gore passed him. And I think that Perry who scored 68 rushing touchdowns for the Niners, that is still a team record for rushing touchdowns, 68. And yet, 
when you talk about great San Francisco 49ers, you talk about Joe Montana, you talk about Steve Young and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig and Dwight Clark and Frank Gore, even John Brody. Nobody says Joe Perry. I just can't get over it. Well, there's a championship ring thing. When you walk around with championship yeah. rings on your hands, that that has a lot to do with it. But there's something else, too, Warren, and, and I know that you're aware of this, but I think we should bring it out. And that is Joe did not play in a few games and take a few games off. He never played fewer than nine games in a season, and that was his last year. We talked about that. He never played fewer than nine. And in, a, in an NFL career where you take so many hits, and you are tackled so many times, and let's face it, it's difficult to stay in that kind of shape for that many years. He played in pretty much every game that his team played, and that's that's one of the things he has in common with Jim Brown. Jim Brown, he never took a day off, never took a playoff. I don't think he ever took a minute off. And Perry was the same way. And we talked about how many great running backs the 49ers had in that million-dollar backfield, three really you know great football players. And we we talk about how that took some hits off of his body because he didn't have to assimilate the hits that someone else was taking when they ran. If you look at it a different way, if he's the featured back on a decent team, then maybe his numbers are bigger. He would have had a shorter career. But maybe his total yardage numbers would have been bigger because he would have Mm -hmm. had the ball more often. Mm -hmm. Certainly Jim Brown got the ball. I mean, you know, when the Cleveland Browns, had the football, you knew Jim Brown was going to get the ball at least once, probably twice every three downs. Mm -hmm. Because why wouldn't you? He averages five yards a carry. And I believe that in a similar circumstance, Joe Perry was the kind of guy who could have produced the same results. He was just that good. Yeah, and you know, he played, if you count the AAFC, I think it comes out to something like 16 years. That's absolutely mind-boggling for a running back. Oh, it sure is. It absolutely is. I mean, that forget the number of games because they played fewer games in than they do now, but just take a look at the number of seasons and how old your body is by the time you've played that many professional yeah, football games. Yeah. You know, it just let's face it, it, it you don't mend that quick. But he wasn't just a running back. He also kicked extra points. He had a field goal to his credit. Uh he returned we talked about how he returned kickoffs. He was this man who could do so many things for you that uh, he he really made everybody around him more successful because he could pick the team up and carry it. Right. He played at a time when you played more than just on one side of the ball. You know, he was certainly honored, though. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Like we said, at one time he was the Pro Player of the Year. How should we remember Joe Perry. And let me ask you this. Why do you think there's so little about him out there? Well, I think we've answered that, uh, that two-word answer, Jim Brown. Uh, yeah. People, you know, when Jim Brown passed Joe Perry and then put up the, at that time, stunning numbers that Jim put up, Jim, Jim Brown's running was to running in the NFL what Babe Ruth's home runs were to baseball. It's great it was comparison. mind-boggling because it, well, before Jim started, a thousand yards was a miraculous season, uh, and of course Joe did it two years. Two in years a row, in a but row. He only did it those two years, 
but he only did it those two years. Jim Brown made it something. Yeah, I got a thousand again. Yeah, I got a thousand again. And and I believe that. Um, and I don't think that Jim did this deliberately. It's just that his his numbers spoke that way. Jim Brown took um, the attention away from what Joe had done. And there's one other thing, Warren, that we haven't talked about, and we really need to. And that is that as Brown came into the game, as Joe Perry went into uh, retirement as a player, that's just about the time that interest in the National Football League was on the rise. Uh-huh. And also the, the AFL uh, was born then, and it had a television package. And so you had two rival football leagues with wonderful television packages. And this is just about the time that the interest in the game really picked up and just about that time, Joe was gone. He was retired. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that hurt him just a little bit because, uh, you know, as fans are getting interested in the game, because they're, they're new fans, they want to know about the new players. And the, the players in the days before are sort of forgotten. Yeah. And I think that Joe was just a case of bad timing. You know, Lee, I was just thinking, we still use in today's game a thousand yards as the measuring stick for a good season by a running back. And today, the game or the season is 16 games long. So if you get a thousand yards in 16 games, that's a pretty darn good, that's a darn good season. He did it two years in a row at a time when only 12 games were played. It's, he was the first to do it. That's how incredible it, it was. First to do it two years in a row. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing is, shoot, just suiting up every day was, was difficult. It still is today. If you, you suit up for 16 games in the National Football League, you've got staying power. And and uh, in in the fifties, you didn't have to suit up quite so many times. It was a little tougher game in those days. The equipment was not as good as it is today, and, and all that sorts of things. And I want to point out one other thing too, um, and that is that Joe Perry never had to play in a game against a guy named Hardy Brown. Hardy Brown played for the Forty ers He was a defensive player, mm-hmm. and he had a knack for throwing his shoulders into a offensive player they didn't have rules against targeting or anything else like that in those days and he would knock people out of games and he was a brutally tough guy but because perry was on his team he never had to play against him in a game (laughs) and i think that probably helped him a little bit too i mean you know it's it's like a quarterback who played for the rams i didn't win many games but i never got tackled by deacon jones because he was on my side and i i just think that that sometimes circumstance help you a little bit uh, we talk about how he played with, with great running backs and with Y.A. Tittle, and maybe that took a few carries out of his hands. But at the same time, he never got hit by Hardy Brown, at least not uh, not in game situation. That's awesome. So in the end, how should we remember Joe Perry? Joe Perry was one of the truly great, I don't like that word, but I'm going to use it for Joe, one of the truly great running backs. He had uh, all the prototypical skills that you have to have even in today's game. He was six feet. He was 200 pounds. He was blazing fast. He was tough enough to last the entire season. He didn't take days off. He was the type of athlete who can do almost anything so he could receive the ball. He could return kickoffs. Uh, he didn't return too many punts, but he probably could have. Um, he, heck, he kicked extra points. Uh, he was one of those players who come around 
very seldom. And he just didn't get recognized because his timing was a little bit off and because uh, there were great players that came right after him that, that took the spotlight away from what was a Hall of Fame career. And sometimes that's the way sports are. It's, it's just, uh, what have you done for me lately? And, and uh, Joe hadn't done the right thing at the right time lately, and, and so the, the spotlight got away from him. But he was every bit as good a running back as anybody that you and I have named tonight uh, with the exception of the great one, Jim Brown. I, in my mind, he's the greatest of all time. But I wouldn't put Joe Perry very far behind him, uh, regardless of who you want to mention, because he was just that good. That's awesome, Lee. Thank you once again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I love having you on, and I will have you on again. Well, I hope that everybody will take uh, the opportunity to go online and look for the Professional Football Researchers Association that's a group that I belong to, and what we do is we study the history of pro football, and anybody can join, and anybody can get onto uh, our forum and discuss the history of the game. We have a lot of people that do that. Some of them are not even members, and they just get on because they like to talk about pro football. We have a convention coming up in Akron in a couple of years, and and uh, Warren, I think you're going to be there. I hope so. Absolutely. And I hope that uh, as many people are interested, we'll uh, look at the PFRA and and uh, maybe we can talk some pro football sometime. That'd be awesome. You know, uh, I'm a member of the PFRA. I love it. It's a it's a great site, has a wealth of knowledge, and you have a wealth of knowledge as well. Well, it sure is good talking to you, Warren, because you and I, uh, we have a lot of same interests, and, and I hope that it was good listening to us. It was awesome. Thank you. We touched on a lot with Lee about Joe Perry. In 1949, he led the All-America Football Conference in rushing with 783 yards, and twice he led the NFL in rushing, the two years he gained over 1,000 yards. He was elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1969, and his number 34 was retired by the Niners. He was named to football's all-decade team of the 1950s, was a three-time Pro Bowler, and twice named to the All-Pro First Team. But, as Lee said, when you're playing in the same era as Jim Brown, perhaps football's greatest running back ever, it's really hard to break out of that shadow. And, of course, never playing on a team that won a championship can also affect your notoriety. Nonetheless, when it comes to football's greatest running backs, Joe Perry should always be in the conversation. Once again, I'd like to thank Lee Elder from the Professional Football Researchers Association for stopping by. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of one of boxing's all-time greats. But fighting as a light heavyweight certainly affects your notoriety. And we're talking about a guy who fought professionally for 28 years, the great Archie Moore. We'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.